Hello, I'm Robin. And I'm Brian. Welcome to Professor Brian Cox Live. These are the Q&A podcasts, all of which were recorded over the UK tour of 2016. And they are part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. So here is one Q&A taken from one of the live shows of 2016. No, don't say anything, Brian. Very professional. That was very professional, wasn't it? Gary Charles says, uh, if there's a pole a light year long and you push one end, how long until the other end moves? That's a brilliant question, that. Um, my um, my co-author and, and friend, Jeff Borshaw, I've worked with him for years and years and years, and uh, when we first started working together, it was over a pint where we asked ourselves that very same question, actually. And uh, our question was, if you get, in physics, you always have a thing, a light, inextensible rod. So it's one of these things that you, and we, we say, if it's connected to the moon, then, um, and you push it, then can you tell, because it's, it's, it's inextensible, and it, and it doesn't weigh anything, you push it, can you tell it's connected to the moon? Because that would violate relativity, because it takes about three seconds for a signal to go to the moon and back. And the answer is that there's, there's no such thing as an inextensible rod because of relativity. So you, you, you have to be, at minimum, you have to be able to push the thing and not notice it's connected to the moon for at least three seconds before it would push back again. And it's the speed of sound in the rod. So, so the answer is that if you've got a rod that's a light year long uh, and you, you, you try and tell if it's connected to something, then you would be able to push it for at least a year before you noticed whether it was connected to something or not. It's obviously a thought experiment, this, because it's... You know, the, 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 but, the, but, the, but the, 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 phys the interesting physics point is that there's that you, you if, if you try and tell whether something's connected to something or not, then you have to wait for at least the speed of sound to go there and back in the rod, and the speed limit on that is the speed of light, and it's always a bit less than that. At least we get our manufacturing time. base going again. What does Professor Cox want from the factory? He just wants a rod, a light year long. Excellent. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and actually, even that statement, it's a light year long, is, is, is frame, reference frame specific. <laughs> because, the, um, so the, there's, a, there's a question. We normally only do two questions, by it, the way. <laughs> Uh, our final question, uh, <laughs> Megan would like to know, what is quantum entanglement and what applications could it have in the future? <laughs> it's a good, easy question. I'm giving you a nice short one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pissy uh, little quantum ones. entanglement. So it's the idea that um, it, you can you can produce particles in such a in such a way that you can separate them to large distances, but they're what's called entangled, which means that, for example, there's a property called spin, which is the way it's usually talked about, where you can have, you can have one particle that has a spin up and the other one that has a spin down. And they're produced like that, so they have, they have opposite, the, the spins add to zero, essentially, they're opposite. But the point is that if you measure this one uh, along that spin axis like that, you say, are you spinning that way or that way? Then it will go, or that way. And this one will instantly s take the opposite orientation up. So that's what's called quantum entanglement, where these things are, they're essentially be, to be considered as one system with a particular property, even though they can be separated by an arbitrarily large distance. And what's interesting about that, though, is that you can't use that to send signals faster than the speed of light. So quantum mechanics is, is, is subtle, and it's a subtle... Um, actually, the, the way that m uh, sort of manifests itself in, in our most advanced theories of quantum mechanics, or quantum field theories, is still an interesting debate. Um, and it, it certainly is true that you can't signal faster than the speed of light, but it's also true that you can get systems in quantum mechanics that respond instantly 
over, over large spatial separations. So that's what, that's what entanglement means. And it's a, an unusual, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance, which is kind of a, a pejorative term. He, didn't, he thought that there would be some better theory where underlying this strangeness is something else that makes more intuitive sense. But it seems, as far as we know, and we've done experiments uh, that they've tried, we've tried to look at this, that that's the way nature is. And I should finally say that that's the basis of quantum cryptography, which is becoming a technology that you can use to send uh, coded signals over long distances. So, so it, it, it's been demonstrated to work, and it's becoming part of technology. I'll give you a yes-no question. Deborah would like <laughs> to know, if there are parallel universes, is there a version of me having a better life than I am? The correct I, I would say answer is yes, but not this evening. No, I would. <laughs> if it depends what you mean by parallel universes, I'm going to talk about um, one kind of uh, multiverse later called the inflationary multiverse, but I'll, I'll leave that and talk about it. But there's also the idea in quantum mechanics, uh, the, the so-called many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, where essentially every possibility uh, happens in. in what you might call this, this, this whole many worlds or quantum multiverse. So in that case, every possible thing that has happened to you and could happen to you happens in that, in that ensemble of universes. Um, so, so yes, I suppose, it depends where you look at it. Uh, but, it but you could look at it half empty, which is the, or half full, whatever it is, which is there are many universes in which it's far worse than this <laughs> as well. So you're lucky to be in this. Um, Rachel would like to know, if dark energy exists and the universe is accelerating in its expansion, why is Andromeda moving towards us? That's a, a brilliant question. Lots of little concepts in there. I should mention, because I wanted to talk about it, um, dark energy. Um, the, so, so the observation in the 1990s uh, was, and it came as a big surprise, that when you look at distant supernova explosions, and there are particular kinds of supernova that we know the brightness of, the intrinsic brightness of, so just like I mentioned the sea feed variables, you can use them to measure distance, you can use particular kinds of supernova to do that. So um, the two groups were looking at distant supernova, a long way away, billions of light years away, and they were looking at the redshift of the light, and they found that the universe, that Hubble constant, in inverted commas, the, the expansion rate of the universe, is not constant, um, it's speeding up. So the universe, the rate of expansion of the universe is increasing, the universe is accelerating in its expansion. And as we saw, Einstein's equations can deal with that. You can put a, a kind of energy into them, known as dark energy, or a cosmological constant, which, which causes that to happen. And you can, you can work out how much you need, and it turns out it's just under 70% of the energy density in the universe is taken up in that process. So the, the current measurement is about just under 5% of the universe, the density, is matter, the stuff, out, the stuff that glows in the, in the stars and the galaxies that we can see, and the stuff out of which we are made. About 25% is what's called dark matter, which is probably although we don't know, some other kind of particle that we haven't discovered yet. Probably, that's the best guess. But we know it's there because we've measured, you can see it in those gravitational lensing experiments. So you, you measure how much mass is there, and you can ask, well, how much of that mass can we see shining? And it's, it's a small fraction, about a fifth of it. So we've got that. And then dark energy, about 70%. But we don't know what it is. It's probably the, large, the biggest question in theoretical physics at the moment, certainly in, in cosmology, I would say is what is the nature of dark energy? It's an absolute mystery what it is, but we know with precision how much there is. 
and how it behaves. Well, I think there's probably an even more important. Oh, question. sorry, that, that wasn't the question, though. What was the it doesn't really matter. We haven't got time. What was the final? Well, the final just tell me the final bit, because then I can answer the final bit. Uh, oh, Andromeda. The, the easy bit is yeah. why is Andromeda coming towards us? The, the stretch rate of the universe is very small. It's, it's the, the Hubble constant roughly is what's it's called 70 kilometers per second per. Um, megaparsec, which is about three million light years. So that means that if you go three million light years away, on the average, things are going away at 70 kilometers a second. And if you go six million, they're going away at 140 kilometers a second and so on. So for something that's only two and a half million light years away, a, a very small velocity, le less than se just a bit more than 70 kilometers a second, overwhelms the expansion rate completely. So for c nearby galaxies, their, their so-called proper motion can be much faster than the expansion rate of the universe. So that's why it's coming towards us. But once you get out to distances of a few thousand light years or uh, sorry, if, you, if you, tens of millions of light years and hundreds of millions of light years, then the expansion rate overwhelms any, any proper motion. So they're all going away when you get sufficiently far away. Anyway, we have got loads of questions, so let's get through as many of these okay. as possible. Uh, the first one, I'll start off with, a, with, uh, with a, a, a sort of reasonably gently, I think. This is from Charlotte, age 12. She would like to know uh, what Doctor Who alien would be the first and most likely you would want to meet. And you have, of course, been on Doctor Who as well. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, the most likely would undoubtedly be um, a microbe, so, uh, so, so not a complex organism. So the, the most likely, if we find aliens in my lifetime, which as I said, we, we may do on some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, they will be single-celled, um, I would guess. So that's the most likely. But what would I like to meet? I'd like to meet uh, an alien from a civilization far in advance of ours. So um, we could skip all the scientific discovery stuff and just get the textbook, basically. <laughs> it should be a lovely thing, wouldn't it? Doctor Who <laughs> alien, though. Oh. Because um, microbes aren't as good. Doctor in the microbes. They rarely... It's one of the less popular William Hartnell episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when we had um, Patrick Stewart on Monkey Cage as well, and he was, you know, the, the, the Captain Picard, and he was talking about um, Star Trek, and he said, uh, I don't know, what, what, he, what, what, what did we ask him? But we said a question to him, and he, and he said, he said, oh, well, of course, you know, most of the planets we visited were very dull, but we just didn't show those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who, I mean, they're all, they're all sort of nasty aliens, aren't they? Yeah, apart from, apart from the well. Doctor. He could be a nasty one. The Doctor. Okay, then, fair alien. enough. He's an alien. He's an alien. Uh, the, uh, so, what is your take? And this, a few people have asked this. This is this a version from Shane. But a lot of people are interested in the idea of this whole thing being a simulation. Not merely this, but everything the, 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 that we are experiencing a simulation. Did, did you, did you, you've seen these, these stories recently. It's been around for a long time, a philosophical idea, which is essentially that um, if you imagine... So, so, our civilization now, we've had computing since the what, the digital computers since the 1940s or so, or 50s, so say half a century. Um, and already, as we'll see actually um, in the second half, we're simulating the universe, but on a very coarse scale. So we can simulate um, the formation of galaxies um, from, from structures that we see in the universe shortly after the Big Bang. So, so we can do simulations of the universe. So the, the sort of idea is, in principle, can you imagine 
Imagine our, the power we have to simulate worlds and computers in, let's say, a hundred years, or maybe a thousand years, or even a million years. If we persist as a civilization for a million years, imagine the computing power we'll be able to, to, to deploy and the fidelity of the, the simulations. So then the question becomes, um, is the, our conscious experience, is it, is it algorithmic? Is our brain essentially a computer? Could it be simulated in a computer in principle? Uh, however powerful you need it, just in principle, could you do it? If you, if you can, and I see no reason why you can't, it seems to me that we obey the laws of physics and therefore can be simulated in principle in a computer, you can imagine that our civilization will get to the point where it simulates reality to this level of detail. And you could ask the question, well, so this, the, the, the simulated beings in there, would they know? Would they know? And it's a very good question. It sounds ridiculous, but it's a very good question. If you want to argue against, you have to focus on the particular places where the argument could fall down. So could it be you can't build computers that are powerful enough? Well, probably not. Could it be that there's something about conscious experience that is not uh, amenable to simulation? Um, possibly, but then you have to argue what that is. So, so the arguments say, um, essentially, that, that given the universe has, has been around for so long, and there's been so many, the, the, the possibility for such vast time spans and so many civilizations and technology to develop, um, could it be, is it likely that we're in a simulation? And some philosophers think, yes, it is likely that we live in a simulation and, and we can't tell. And it sounds like science fiction, but then you can ask yourself those questions. What is it? Where does the argument fall down? And it's difficult to pinpoint it. Pragmatically, though, it doesn't really have any day-to-day -day ramifications, does it? Because that's, you know, sometimes you might see someone like David Icke and they then read a lot into the possibilities of its simulation. But in terms of your viewpoint, do you see it pragmatically having... David I mean, Icke. how much do you change the way you live your life now you know you're a simulation? Because we do believe you're a simulation, just not the rest of them. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. It's something, I think you can all discuss it in the pub afterwards. It's a good point. It is a good would one you, Would you pub. care? Would you, would you care? Does it make any difference? And how would you know? They're, they're good questions. You'll find a lot of literature on it. If you can, you, you'll, you'll, you'll see if you, if you go and search the web. It's not all crazy stuff. There's some really serious academic papers written on this at the moment. Does Brian think there is an end to space? Um, do I think there's an end to space? Um, no. Uh, well, so I'll show that we think that the universe extends beyond the bit we can see. And I'll just give you a, a, a very two-minute reason for that. I don't usually talk about this, but seeing as it's come up, there's another, there's a problem called the flatness problem, which is, I mentioned actually, very in passing when we looked at the Friedman equation, there's this other term in it, which is about the shape of, of space. And the, the, the curvature of space, if you like. There are three possibilities, which is it can be, it can be curved like a sphere. It's always curved the same in every direction because we assumed that matter was distributed uniformly. So the universe has to look the same in every direction under that assumption. So given that, you can either curve like a, like a sphere or curve like a saddle, which is the other way around, or the limiting case is flat, a so-called flat universe. And our universe is measured to be flat to extremely high precision. So the question is, why? Why is that? And the, the answer, which is given uh, quite naturally by the theory I'm gonna talk about a little bit later called inflation, is that the universe is far bigger than the bit we can see. 
So it is more likely, fine-tuned things don't tend to happen. So it's more likely it is curved one way or the other. But if the universe is far bigger than the bit we can see, the bit we can see will always look flat. And the analogy is that it's like looking at the surface of the Earth. So if you look at the Earth on a, on a distant scale of a, a couple of meters or something, two square meters, it looks flat. You have to look on scales of order the radius of the Earth to see that the Earth is curved. And it's the same in these theories with the universe. So the explanation for why our universe looks fine-tuned and flat, which is dependent on how much matter there is in it, by the way, is that the universe is far bigger than the bit we can see, hundreds of times, thousands of times bigger. So that, and some people think it may be infinite in extent for that reason. But at least we've got good evidence that it, or a good argument that it should be a lot bigger than the little bit we can see with um, two trillion galaxies in it. What technological advancement will propel us most to a life off the Earth? Um, I think um, it's, it's probably um, the, it's getting, building infrastructure in orbit is the answer. Because the, the problem with getting a spacecraft to the moon, the reason you need a Saturn V, which is a big, you know, powerful thing, is because you have to launch the whole thing, including the spacecraft, into, into Earth orbit and then take all the fuel with you and all those things. So the way to get to Mars, as you said, um, as Brian would like to do, and, and onwards is, is to build an infrastructure in orbit and hopefully to mine fuel on some, maybe off the moon or maybe off, off Mars to get, we, we know that there's liquid water on Mars, which is rocket fuel, hydrogen and oxygen. So, so to build places where you can get your fuel to go onwards out into the solar system. So I think that's it. I think it's not one technological advance. I think it's the development of infrastructure uh, in orbit that can then allow you to leapfrog away. Um, Kay Langston would like to know, why do different galaxies appear to be different colours on the photos? Um, they are, well, the, the, very, the very distant galaxies always appear red, as I said, because the light gets stretched more. But the different, um, the different glows of the galaxies, some of it's false colour, actually. Some of it's the different filters that are in there. So some photographs of galaxies are, are accentuated, so you can see different, um, different chemical elements and different different things like hydrogen gas absorbing light and things like that. So, so, um, but some of them are real. Some of the colors are from the chemical elements themselves in the gas clouds. Um, so the, but it's, it tends to be a mixture in, in astronomical photographs. You've got to see whether there's false color in there, which is always put in so you can see more detail. Um, Eva Pine says she's 15 and no one wants to do physics at school. How do you change their minds? That's a... a a great question because we have a huge shortage of uh, we have a shortage of physicists and engineers and scientists in general actually and particularly in the physical sciences we have we have too few um, young women going into the physical sciences for, for a multitude of reasons we, we look at this the Royal Society where I also work um, does a lot of work on this that it's very subtle it's not obvious it's not as simple as, as saying well we need more role models although we do and there, there, there are great role models particularly for girls going into science um, I'm thinking of Jocelyn Bell Burnell but Alice Roberts on TV and Helen Chersky and those people but, but also there's some evidence that um, there's unconscious bias against um, girls in particular um, from, from parents and from teachers. Um, so it's not conscious. There's, you know, very few parents or teachers want to put the girls off, but there's sometimes just a, a slight 
sort of unconscious. So, well, it's not physics. Maybe biosciences is better or something like that. You know. So, so it's, a, it's a difficult question. Um, the answer, though, the answer to your question is that because there's a shortage of physicists, first of all, but secondly, because it's such, a, I can really recommend it as a wonderful thing, a wonderful way to spend your life exploring nature. Um, you have to make the choice, uh, and that, that's the best advice I can give. That what, what I can say is that it would be a, 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 it's a very sensible choice in terms of job prospects, but it's also, I think, a, a wonderful choice. So that's that's what I'd say. But it, there, there's very complex reasons why we, uh, we we don't really fully understand it. There's a lot of research done. It's also a job which is never going to end. There's never going to be a point where someone goes, we finished science, lay off the physicists. <laughs> no, the, um, it's getting more and more, more and more complicated in cosmology all the time. Big questions. Um, Alex Wilson would like to know, what happens to things that get eaten by a black hole? Where does that matter go? That, so so um, matter falls into a black hole. Um, and uh, Einstein's theory tells us that it just gets squashed to a point and that matter is essentially va vanishes. It's, no, it's not recycled back into the universe again. But we know, and this is what Stephen Hawking is most famous for, um, no might be too strong, but our best picture of a black hole is that's not what happens. They're not, they're not, they don't lock the matter away forever. So Stephen's most famous, probably, for a process called Hawking radiation, which is the idea that uh, you look at a black hole and you think, well, nothing can get out. Uh, but it does, actually. And it gets out by quantum mechanical effects on what's called the event horizon. So, so the event horizon is the no-go, the region around the black hole. It's a sphere around the black hole. Around where if you went in through it, you'd have to travel faster than light to get out of it. So it's the, it's the region of no return in that sense. But on the edge, quantum mechanics tells you that you have particles and antiparticles, so pairs of particles being produced, going in and out of the vacuum all the time, so-called quantum fluctuations. And that's a, an absolutely basic feature of quantum theory. That's true that we observe those. We observe the way they uh, change the spectrum of light from atoms that I talked about in the solar spectrum, for example. So we know we can calculate those. We know they exist. So the idea is that on the event horizon, you get a pair of particles made like that. They would borrow their energy for a while and then pay back their debt to the vacuum, to the universe again. Except that you can imagine that one of them can get inside the event horizon and one of them can stay outside and then they can't come back together again. So the one that goes in falls into the black hole and the other one radiates out and the black hole loses energy by that process. So making those particles real, essentially. And by that process, because it loses energy, it shrinks in mass and ultimately evaporates back into the universe again. But on timescales for the biggest black holes of order 10 to the power 100 years, which is one with 100 noughts after it. Um, now, the universe today is, the rule of thumb is 10 to the 10 years, you know, about 10 billion years or so on this. So, so it's significantly longer than the current age of the universe that a black hole takes to evaporate, but ultimately we think they all will in the far future. So it comes back eventually. Elliot Davis would like to know, as human-made climate change is a fact, can the potential change in temperature be used to our benefit? I mean, it's, uh, it, it depends on what you mean by our benefit, doesn't it? I suppose if you live in a warming world, then... Um, you could say, well, in, if you lived in Siberia, you'd like it to be a bit warmer, but of course you, you, you decimate large areas of the equatorial regions and central uh, North America. And so, so 
you know, I, I think it's probably the wrong way to look at it. <laughs> I mean, there will be. I mean, people do. There's a, there's, there is a, a discussion that goes on about how you mitigate what, what you do. So, so, so given that we're committed to a temperature rise of order two degrees probably already, on average, what, what do you do? And so, so you can, you, it requires population movement. It is true that you open up new areas of the, of the polar regions and, and Siberia, great land masses there that you open up to, to agriculture, perhaps temporarily, but you know, so it's, a, it, uh, it's something we would probably rather not do, <laughs> to be honest. Um, if you'd like to know more, see him on the Australian TV show Q&A that's on YouTube. It's a very entertaining discussion between him and a climate change. Well, that was uh, a, a nutter. I mean, he, yeah. was, I mean, he said... <laughs> He was a senator, an Australian senator. I mean, it wasn't that he was making some kind of, you know, even reasonably semi-rational argument that you, if you, you're going to say, well, I don't believe the temperature data, and you could say, why? I don't believe the satellites are calibrated, or something, something that's reasonably sensible. He, he was just saying that the whole thing is a conspiracy invented by NASA. And I, and I said to him, why? You know, why, why would they do that? And he, of course, he... I didn't know, he just thinks it is. You know, it's just like, you know, just, just, just It was beautiful to watch being but in the was, green room and it's just honestly, seeing. It's bizarre. Show Don't me some evidence. Here's this graph. Not that evidence. Show me some others. Here's another one. No, not that one. There, there's and there's a, a brilliant bit where Brian goes, just look at them, and he throws the paper in this wonderful. But of course, air resistant means it just goes. For, blah, 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 doesn't quite honestly, make it. this is honestly true. I'll just say it because we've got to stop in a minute. But, but, uh, oh, yeah. Well, but um, the, the, on, on Twitter the other day, someone tweeted to me, it's from America somewhere, and they, and they said, uh, why does the earth appear flat on your programs? And of course, one of these flat earth people. So I said, it, it, appears, it, it, it appears flat because it is flat, but I say it's round because NASA pay me a million dollars a year. <laughs> That's what I said. So I tweeted that back, honestly. And then, and then it came up again the other day, and someone said, see? He said, that, he said <laughs> and, then, and then someone started arguing with them, and he's going, and this person was really saying, see, I told you. They actually really believed it. <laughs> like, God, oh. well, I it's should a hang. really easy way to make money. The Earth's round, a million dollars. But you should try it, it's great. <laughs> Everything is really good. <laughs> Thank you for listening. All episodes will be found at cosmicshambles.com slash Brian Cox QA. And for more podcasts, documentaries, and those kind of things, check out cosmicshambles.com. The Brian Cox Arena Tour continues in the UK in May. Dates and tickets can be found at briancoxlive.com. And there will also be one day in June in Oslo. And we'll be out in New Zealand and Australia in November of 2017. And information about tickets for the Arena Tour in the UK in May, uh, you can get those at briancoxlive.co.uk and that should also soon have some information uh, about dates in Norway as well. Terms and conditions apply. What are the terms and conditions, by the way? Are they merely the laws of the universe or do they go deeper than that? They're just the laws of the universe. Just okay, that's the good. terms and conditions. The standard model, the particle physics, uh, general relativity. Uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I would love if at the end of every one of those adverts, people have to do that bit where they have to talk about it very quickly and it would be the entirety of the general relativity. Yep, that'd be great. We'll try and do that next time. SU3 cross SU2 cross AU1 gauge theory plus a general relativity uh, applies. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I will be on tour 
in Australia and New Zealand with Josie Long, Helen Chersky, Matt Parker and Lucy Green and a lot of other musicians and comedians starting at the end of March. And if you'd like to know where we're going to be in Australia and New Zealand, just go to CosmicShamblesLive.com or check the CosmicShambles.com website. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.